Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us tonight to hear you, the speaking God. Help us, Lord, to see and to know your faithfulness. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The school playground provided another level of education that wasn't found or learned within the classroom itself. And with the dinner ladies as judge and jury over lunchtime and break time, a whole world of social integration was learned in the playground between the dinner bells. And every break time and every lunchtime, weather permitting, of course, there was at least one game of football going on in the playground. And there we tried to recreate what our heroes had done on TV the night before. And there we learned a new word. We, well, we probably learned lots of words on the, on the football field but one in particular that we're going to think about tonight. It was a word for someone who always stayed up front, hovering near the opposition goal, almost keeping the the goalkeeper company, just waiting for the ball to come up the pitch so that they could score the goal. They were a glory hunter. You see, they wanted to get the glory. They wanted everyone to shout their praise. They wanted to score the goal. But that was all that they wanted to do. They didn't want to you know, help the team out when uh, the ball went back to midfield. or they, they didn't want to have to defend. They just wanted to score the goals and to get the glory. Our psalm this evening stands in stark contrast to the idea of glory hunting, of basking in our own glory, of stealing the limelight for ourselves. We might sometimes be tempted to uh, make sure that we're noticed, uh, to take the credit for any success. But Psalm 115 on page 615, uh, as it is rooted in the escape from Egypt, It attributes glory to the right person. This uh, psalm coming uh, from Psalm 113 through to Psalm 118 uh, is a series of psalms that were sung around the Passover as the Israelites remembered uh, coming out of Egypt and having escaped from Egypt through uh, those ten plagues and especially the Passover having passed through the Red Sea and the River Jordan, as we saw last week in Psalm 114, the people of Israel might have been tempted to think, look at what we've done. We have managed to escape. We've done it all by ourselves. But straight away in verse 1, we see the glory being given uh, to the right person. The address being written uh, on the envelope to the right address. 
Verse 1, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Our psalm this evening is an antidote to any hint of pride that might arise within ourselves. It challenges the I did it my way attitude and asks, are we glory hunters? Are we glory stealers? Or will we give God the glory that is rightfully his? The glory that is his because of his love and his faithfulness. So let's dive into the psalm to see God's glory, to see his love and his faithfulness in action. And straight away in verse 2, we're met with a question. The question is this, why do the nations say, where is their God? For the nations all around, the people of Israel were something strange. They were out of the ordinary. They were, in the language of the King James Version, a peculiar people, which in the King James language means a particular people, a specific group of people. Uh, But to the nation surrounding, they were just peculiar. They were strange. Now, why was this? It was because you couldn't see Israel's God. That's why the nations are asking, where is their God? Now, the answer that we find in verse 3 is obvious to us. But it was unusual for the surrounding nations. It says, verse 3, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. Now, why was that so strange to the other nations? Why could they not get their head around that? Well, it was so strange because every other nation had small g gods who were visible. If you went to their temple or their place of worship, you could see them. They were there as a statue or an idol. But seeing their gods didn't really help them. You see the contrast there between the God of Israel and the gods of the nations. Verses 3 and 4. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold, made by the hands of men. Our God is alive. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. He even made us. But people have made their idols, things of silver and gold. So which would you prefer, the visible silver God or the invisible living God? The God of gold or the God of gods? There's no comparison. But just to make absolutely certain, in verses 5 to 7, we're given a rundown on the absolute uselessness of these idols. At the same catalogue that we heard in Psalm 135 as well. 
You see, these uh, statues, these idols, have been made with mouths and eyes and ears and noses and hands and feet. But they can't do anything with them. They're powerless to do anything. Look at all the cannots there from verse 5. They cannot speak, they cannot see, they cannot hear, they cannot smell, they cannot feel, they cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. These visible gods are useless, they're worthless. But the psalm actually goes further to tell us that as well as being useless, they're positively dangerous. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, you are what you eat. Um, and, you know, people will try to sell their latest diet based on, you know, you, you need to eat healthy and then you'll, you'll be healthy. Um, and maybe you've teased someone that if they keep eating a certain type of food, then they'll turn into that type of food. So, you know, if you keep eating donuts, you'll, you'll turn into a donut. Or something like that. I think I'm half the way there maybe. Um, Anyway. um, Verse 8 tells us. Not that we are what we eat. Verse 8 tells us that we become. Like what we worship. Do you see that? Look at it with me. Those who make them. That is make the idols. Will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. You become like what you worship. You become like what you put your trust in. So those who worship these unprofitable idols will become like them. To trust in something is to become like that something. Now that tells us, obviously, not to worship the idols. But it's no surprise then that what comes next is a call to trust in the Lord. You see, if we become like what we trust, then the call goes out to trust in the Lord. It comes there three times, verses 9 to 11. O house of Israel, uh, which was the whole nation, O house of Aaron, which was the priests, and you who fear him, whoever, anyone in any nation around the whole world, anyone who will come to trust the Lord. So why should we trust? It's back to verse 1, isn't it? Because of God's glory, because of God's love and faithfulness. Because actually when we trust in the Lord, we discover that he is our help and our shield. His love and faithfulness is in action. But sometimes it's not easy to trust the Lord. I know that and I'm sure you know that as well. And it can be especially hard whenever... You can't see him. That was the position that the first disciples were about to find themselves in. 
It was the Passover meal. And suddenly Jesus, their master and friend, had told them that he was leaving. That they couldn't go with him at this point. That he was going back to the Father. And they couldn't take it in. They didn't know how they were going to cope without Jesus with them. And what does Jesus say in those familiar words that we hear at many funerals at the start of John 14? Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. The Christian life is one of trusting God, especially because we can't see him. But the Christian hope is that one day we will see him face to face. And we will, in the words of 1 John 3, which we used this morning, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. That is our hope. The hope that we press forward to enjoy, even when it's difficult, knowing that he is our help and our shame. Do you see how verses 12 and 13 then echo verses 9 to 11? It's when we trust the Lord that we discover that he remembers us and will bless us. And he will do that for each of those three categories all over again. The house of Israel, the house of Aaron, and those who fear the Lord, small and great alike. If you fear the Lord, if you trust the Lord, then we are assured of his blessing. We haven't earned it. We don't deserve it. And yet it is God's glory to bless us when we trust in him. And he increases us and blesses us because that is what he is like. As the psalm comes towards a close, we see how the two possible pathways lead in different directions. You see, to choose who you will worship leads to an end point. And as we've already seen, you become like what you worship. And in the end, that pathway becomes set becomes ultimate. God is the one, verse 15, uh, who is the maker of heaven and earth. And as verse 3 has said, our God is in heaven. So verse 16, the highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to man. So what on earth? Are you going to do with the Lord? What on earth are you going to do in response to his grace? Will you worship him and trust him? Or will you worship and trust and follow some other God or idol? We don't really go in for the gods of silver or gold these days, but there are 
all sorts of alternative idols around. And it really is a life or death choice. It really does matter at which you will give your life to, which you will trust. Verse 17, it is not the dead who praise the Lord, those who go down to silence. It is we who extol the Lord, both now and forevermore. Praise the Lord. You see, to trust an idol, to worship some other god, that is ultimately the path of death. We're not speaking here of physical death, of, of those that we love who have died. No, the idea here is of those who are spiritually dead, those, those who have no hope, those who, in the words of verse 17, go down to silence. Why does it use those words? Because you become like what you worship. The idols have mouths, but they cannot speak. And those who trust in them will be like them. Silence. But do you see the contrast between the silence of verse 17 and the speaking of verse 18? It is we who extol the Lord, both now and forevermore. You see, to trust in the Lord is to know the hope of eternal life, to be assured of the life which is beyond this life, of being at home with the Lord, as John 14 reminds us, and engaging in extolling him, praising him, both now and forevermore. Christian life is marked out as a life of praise, giving God the glory that is due to his name. We're not to look for our own glory. We're not to steal his glory. We're to live only for his glory. And we do that by trusting in him, the one who is your help. And you're saved. You'll become like the one that you worship. So who are you worshipping? Are you facing a future of silence? Trusting in a silent, if visible, idol? Or preparing for an eternity of praise as you trust the God who is in heaven? Towards the end of his life, John Newton, who wrote the hymn that we all love, Amazing Grace, he said this, Although my memory is failing, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Jesus is a great saviour. You who fear him, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shame. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus is indeed a great saviour. We thank you uh, for the way in which he offers us that path of life. We thank you that you are our God in heaven. We thank you that you are our help and our shield. Father, we ask that you would help us to trust in you, to praise you both now and forevermore. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.